In this episode, I'm joined by Tara Springett, a Buddhist psychotherapist who specializes in treating Kundalini syndrome. Tara recounts emerging from a troubled childhood to experience her first of several spiritual awakenings through a type of consciousness expansion known as Kundalini. Tara shares the diverse consequences of these experiences in her own life, including a reckoning with her unconscious mind, a life-changing yearning for the divine, and paranormal encounters. Tara recounts her conversion to Tibetan Buddhism and her time spent with teachers such as Rigdon Shikpo and Garchen Rinpoche, who would both go on to encourage her to teach Buddhism. Tara details learning a range of Buddhist practices, including compassion meditation, manifestation wish practice, and the inner yogas of Tumo. Tara also shares her experiences channeling White Tara and reflects on her understanding of the process of spiritual awakening and karmic purification that working with Kundalini energy is said to bring about. So without further ado, Tara Springett. Tara Springett, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm very delighted to be speaking with you today. And you've had a fascinating life and a very interesting career working as a Buddhist psychotherapist specializing uh, in Kundalini symptoms and people with Kundalini awakenings, guiding them through that. And you write in your book, Enlightenment Through the Path of Kundalini, that the two sorts of people you work with in Kundalini are those that wish to awaken their Kundalini or they want to go through it in a safe way. And also those who have had an accidental or intentional uh, or perhaps deliberate, but gone wrong Kundalini awakening that they're struggling with and have various symptoms and they come to you to discuss that. So I'd, I'd love to get into that a bit later. But I'm wondering if we could start off with your biography and particularly your upbringing. At 17, you, you began, you said, your own Kundalini process. Uh, but I'm curious about before that, what was your childhood like and uh, what brought you to that point at 17 years old? Um, my childhood was a bit difficult. You know, both my parents were troubled individuals. They were both alcoholics. They're both dead now, so I'm not hearing this. And so um, that was not easy to grow up. And there was also uh, some abuse, you know, so, so it wasn't very good. On the other hand, there were very well educated. They educated us very well. And um, when I was 17 and I had my Kundalini awakening, I don't think that actually had anything to do with my childhood. I think that had everything to do with my past life, whatever I've done to make that happen. So, um, you know, I find with my Kundalini clients, they often have their Kundalini awakenings at any age, at 30, 40, 50. But those uh, who had it very early, like I had, like in their teenage years, I assume that the actual Kundalini awakening was in the past life. And then you just, you know, a trigger comes along for me. That was my first boyfriend. <laughs> that was the trigger that triggered that. And um, or let's say my first real boyfriend. Um, you know, there's a, a trigger and then boom, it all starts again. So um, does that answer your question? <laughs> Do you want to yes. know more? No, yes. Uh, very interesting. I'm curious about that first, um, the symptoms, I suppose, or the consequences of that first Kundalini awakening. But perhaps before we begin with that, before we go there, maybe we could disambiguate this term Kundalini because people will, I think, be familiar with it in different contexts. Some people may have read Gopi Krishna's book on Kundalini in a sort of Hindu context. People will be aware of it perhaps from New Age or theosophical 
perspectives. Some will be aware of it from Yogi Bhajan's Kundalini Yoga, which is uh, another system. And of course, I think maybe the fewest of all will be aware of it in a Buddhist context, perhaps, where it's often called by different names. Perhaps you could disambiguate this term Kundalini a little bit before we continue. So it's best known as the kind of idea that there is like a coiled snake at the bottom of your spine, and then you get some sort of initiation or something happens and then it wakes up and it goes up and creeps up your central channel and meets Shakti in the brain and um, and then you get enlightened. Now that's a fairy book tale, not true what a, a description of what actually is happening. Um, you know, I like to refer it as a, as a, to a, a consciousness expansion. I would like to get rid of the word Kundalini because it gets the idea that there is some outside force or some snake or something, an energy doing something in you that is not really part of yourself, but that's never like that. So what's really happening is that, you know, you've been, let's say I was Tara before, and then I'm more of Tara. I have a consciousness expansion. I experience more of my own um, unconscious mind so things that were unconscious before become conscious and I also experience in the outside world things that were hidden for me for example paranormal experience and so this is the consciousness expansion and and when that happens when the unconscious material comes up people uh, uh, also can get physical symptoms so because the the unconscious material is literally in our physical body, you know, in, in this one is maybe some childhood trauma that I've forgotten. Here in the other shoulder is maybe some antisocial aggressive impulse that I'm that I have repressed and I should have repressed. And uh, and then somewhere else is envy, and then there's something somewhere else inappropriate sexual impulses, all sorts of stuff. And uh, and and that will all come up sometimes faster, and then it's a that. And we have a kundalini crisis and sometimes more slowly which is better more ideal and 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 then um you know expands our consciousness and this consciousness expand, expansion is in four areas first one is our unconscious mind so what we have repressed like i've just said comes up then also we can link into uh, the unconscious mind of other people. So we don't take people so easily by face value anymore. We can see behind the mask, which is good in some respect. In other respects, you think, well, that is something that I'd rather not know. And also all these nice people, they're not there anymore because you see all their not so nice parts. So it has its pitfalls, yeah? And then the third dimension where we have the consciousness expansion is the world of the paranormal. Clairvoyance, telepathy, seeing spirits, dead people, having visions of the divine, lots of things, you know, a whole list. And some people uh, take that in their stride, they love that, and others find that really, really scary. They're, they're seeing they are now pursued by some ghosts and get very, very anxious about that. So they need help with that as well. And the fourth dimension, which is the most important dimension, is the, the spiritual realizations so that we can experience higher spiritual states of bliss, of um, visions of the divine, of communications with divine or higher beings, 
of uh, that this whole spiritual reality becomes real to us. It's and when we read some a special book of some renowned master, we can we can understand it. We say, yeah, yeah, I know what that means. I I've had I have that in my meditation. And this realization of these higher spiritual states, that that is what the Kundalini awakening is really all about. And um, maybe I should say also in this context that the Kundalini energy, this consciousness expansion can be abused. It can be used for bad, bad things, for example, black magic. So you have this, this access to this paranormal uh, dimension and you have an evil um, motivation then you can put curses on people and you can be actually quite successful with that. And uh, particularly if I have gullible people who can't defend against that. And uh, so it's a, it's a power that can be used for good. Uh, it has, you know, it's maybe similar to sexuality, but we can use it for good to create loving relationships, to have a, to create a family. But as we all know, we can also do a lot of bad things with our sexuality. And it's the same thing that what we can do with this consciousness expansion. Very interesting indeed. Do you think that the various different systems that I listed there are sort of, um, I suppose, certain kinds of uh, Hindu tantric systems, perhaps, um, Buddhist systems of Chandali and Tumo and Yogi Bhajan's Kundalini Yoga, and, and may, maybe New Age, uh, shall we say, freelance experimenters of various sorts, do you think they're all working with the same uh, Kundalini? Uh, do you see those systems as um, working on the same uh, dynamic? Or is there some difference there? They're just using similar words. Um if it's just a genuine experience, it's, it's totally the same. You know, in my work, uh, I have worked maybe around with 2,000 people or coming up with 2,000 people. I do that since uh, 10 years. And, um, and the majority of these people are from all sorts of backgrounds. They're not all Buddhist or dedicated yoga um, students. And so forth. A lot of them are actually a little bit so kind of what you may call new age people. So people who read a few special books and haven't got a real affiliation to some some uh, system or teacher. So I so because I, but I also get Muslims in there and Catholic people and some of the traditional religions as well. They don't feel understood in their systems, uh, and I can attest that they all have the same experience. I have developed a test, a Kundalini test. Uh, maybe I should mention that, that that's uh, accessible for free on my website. So anybody who wants to do the test uh, can, can do it there. There's only five criteria there. So the, the problem is with uh, Kundalini, it's a very unresearched topic. So psychiatrists or lots of other people who could research that from, from a more scientific point of view, they have, they haven't found it yet. I don't know. There's no real interest there. To my knowledge, I know there's two PhDs being written by two um, um, Bonnie Greenwald and Yvonne Casson in, in Canada. But other than that, there's very very little proper research on that. So when I say a Kundalini test, I, I need to emphasize this is the test that I've developed myself on the basis of these thousands of clients. And my own experience, and obviously I've got, uh, I've read all the literature that I could get my hands on. And, uh, and from that, I can say, um, yes, this is the same thing. 
um, strangely, maybe a bit sadly, when you, let's say, go to the Kundalini yoga groups, I don't want to put them all down, but I've had a number of clients who, who did Kundalini yoga, had a Kundalini awakening, and then their teacher didn't really know what it was. <laughs> they, they, you know, obviously they didn't, the teacher themselves didn't have the Kundalini awakening. They could maybe teach all the asanas and, 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 and the yoga, but, but they didn't have the, the, the knowledge of, of that. And so then the clients were quite disappointed. But then I think that's also part of the spiritual past, that certain illusions that we have about our teachers and how much we put them on a pedestal and think they're so far developed. And then we think, oh, maybe not so much. And um, But that's also part of growing up spiritually. Very interesting. You've raised a number of themes there. Later on, I'd like to ask you about the symptoms, uh, how, how someone might tell if they have something that might be a kundalini awakening and also i'd like to disambiguate it from various mental illnesses which at least superficially it can appear to resemble and also this theme here you're bringing up of if you want religious institution or organized religion in which maybe even the word is explicitly used buddhist hindu groups uh, kundalini yoga groups whatever the case may be and then the individual who might experience that well sometimes there's some tension there i wonder I wonder if you've had friction, actually, being as public as you are talking about these matters, but that's, I think, for later. Could we return to your story? So at 17, you have the, uh, this experience, and what were the consequences of that? You had another big experience at 24 during a bioenergetic that, therapy. That's right. That's right. And, and, and then another influx at the age around 41, and then another big influx uh, roughly two years ago. <laughs> So uh, at 17, obviously, I had not a single clue what was happening to me. Um, there were good consequences and, and problematic ones. I, maybe I start with the good ones. So um, I, at the time, I was still going to school. I still had three years to go. And uh, that sounds strange. Yeah, but maybe two and a half. But anyway, I stopped school at 19, not with 20. And uh, and. I was a mediocre student. I wasn't very good at school. And then suddenly it became so easy. I only had straight A's from there on and I had a very good um, A-level. So the final exam for going to university was top, top grades. And it was super easy. I, I also didn't need to, to work very hard. I know for my A-levels, I, I, I just had to learn one hour a day. I, I organized all my learning stuff. <laughs> one hour and then I had a straight A and everything. And so it became super easy to learn and, um, and to get all these good grades. And uh, another thing uh, is that I experienced some sort of explosion of creativity. And I started to do all sorts of handicraft work and pictures. And I was really, uh, you know, very, very active then and did all that creative stuff. So that's maybe the positive things. Uh, and, and the negative things is that my mind became, uh, you know, very, um, oh, another good, good thing is uh, that I, as a teenager, I was a bit um, overweight. And uh, like all teenagers, I didn't like that one bit and I wanted to lose weight and I couldn't. And suddenly I could, you know, suddenly the weight dropped off. I knew I had that discipline, I could do it. You know, that was wonderful. Um, so on the negative side, I 
I got all these negative emotions. Suddenly I got very anxious. I got some OCD type um, feelings, you know, compulsive, obsessive thoughts about certain things. My, my eating became a bit obsessive and, um, and that didn't feel at all very good. So how, mainly anxiety came up. And, uh, and then um, I think, I, yeah, so when I was, uh, then I, I, told, I had a friend at the time and she said, oh, why don't you try this relaxation uh, technique? I mean, that was 1978. We didn't have the new age. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have to go on YouTube and do some relaxation technique. And, you know, I mean, to find a yoga book was quite something, you know, and, and to have a relaxation technique. That was all, all very much at the start, all this self-development stuff. stuff. So, so my, my friend said, here, here, I have a book, learn this relaxation technique. And, uh, and, and I was doing it and, I, and there were affirmations in there. So I was, was doing that. And, and strangely, I also started to read spiritual books, which I didn't understand at all. I think there were some Krishna people in our little town disseminating some pamphlets and little booklets. So I got myself something like that. I hadn't got a clue what was in there. I couldn't understand it, but I forced myself to read the whole, the whole thing. I also think I read Carlos Castaneda, which was uh, was famous. I think so. Also, that was all gobbledygook to me, you know, at 17, grown up in a little quiet town in, in, in Germany. And um, so you could see suddenly I became interested in spirituality. But I grew up in a house uh, with my father was a very proud atheist, you know, he was happy to free us from the bondage of conventional religion and, uh, and, and give us this academic training to him you know, if I, if I, if he had known that I go in that direction, that, that would have been a grave disappointment, you know, because he, he, you know, I, I actually, I'm born into a priest family, a Protestant priest family, which has records going back uh, a thousand years because all the records were kept in the church. And every second child or son in this family had to become a priest. And, and my father was the second son and he was all, all on his uh, path to become this priest and then he denounced it all and it was a big re uh, rebellion, you know, and he, he passed it on to us. So, um, you know, in, in my family, anything religious was completely seen as backward superstition. <laughs> so it wasn't exactly the best reading ground for, for my spirituality to unfold so it stayed a little bit hidden but I started uh, you know very early on the, you know with this the relaxation exercise with the affirmations with yoga but when I was 19 I, I, I was doing daily yoga and at the time today this is not so special but then it was quite unusual to do things like that. What did you think was happening to you at that time? Did you recognize anything, or did you did you <laughs> clock it at all, or is or is it in hindsight that you're 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 noticing these things? Um, I I thought it's really strange, you know, um, that I suddenly was having all these psychological difficulties, and um, obviously the becoming good at school that I didn't question that at all. That was good. That was welcome. <laughs> but suddenly I had all these problems now. 
the eating disorders, I mean, that was widespread. A lot of girls in my class had that, you know, I think that these days they have that too. So I, I knew, I mean, lots of others had that too. And, and, uh, and people also had problems, psychological problems. We were quite open about that. We talked about that. So I wasn't so strange, but uh, it, it was still a little bit disconcerting that suddenly I was so, so I had so many problematic feelings. But then you see, I was growing up, you know, I mean, when you're 17, you, you expect life to change, you know, and then you have this big transition from home to university or, or living somewhere else or doing other things, moving away from your parents. So life is changing in a big time anyway. So I, I didn't think something particular was amiss. Um, you know, I, I asked, I remember asking my mother for, if I could have psychotherapy because my eating was, uh, go, was not going well. And she, um, she dismissed that as some sort of, you know, attention seeking. <laughs> So I didn't get any support, which was very sad. But as, uh, you know, you know, <clears throat> as soon as I moved out um, from my home, I was, I think I was 19 or 20. Then, um, you know, when I went to university, I, the first thing I did, I uh, enrolled in some psychotherapy, uh, which was free and from the university. And I was really interested in developing myself. And, and, uh, and then the stone got rolling and I, I you know, I have, engage in this mind expanding activities, psychotherapy, Buddhism. Uh, you know, I, I started to become a Buddhist at the age of 24. So that was a big, wonderful event where I felt like I've come home and I've done very little else in my whole life. You know, I've become a psychotherapist myself, then I became a Buddhist teacher and I'm working the whole time with people and uh, who had, you know, have these troubles and tribulations and um, and obviously, I developed myself further as well, you know, through through meditation and through um, you know mind expanding methods. What did you study at university? Uh, that was education, education and political science. And so, at twenty four, in your book Enlightenment Through the Path of Kundalini, you wrote, "My Kundalini." Awakened at the age of twenty four. Now I understand you've subsequently re revised that. And uh, yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. You've revised the beginning of your Kundalini experiences to seventeen. Well, um, that's uh, the, it was very obvious. Then at twenty four, it became very obvious. Then right. spirituality became the most important thing in my life. And at seventeen, it was more you know because I was in the environment that was so unsupportive to all of this, and I was still a child living in the in the in the house of my parents. So that wasn't really unfolding. But when knowing the signs and symptoms, I, I can really see it really started back there. And you write, I was a rather arrogant atheist at the time and struggled with a number of psychological issues that I tried to address with bioenergetic therapy. But I got yes. a deeper cure than I had bargained for. <laughs> Within months of my awakening, I experienced such a deep transformation that I turned from a fervent atheist into a devoted spiritual practitioner. Can you tell us a bit about that incident at 24 years old? Yeah, that's right. So I, I was studying political science and, and uh, you know, I was really, you know, at the time, I mean, that was the early 80s, uh, you know, we talked about Marxism and communism and particularly anarchism. That was my main 
and that that's what I love best, you know, anarchism and grassroots anarchism, where everybody comes together, sitting in a big circle, and then you discuss a topic, and then you make together in consensus a a, a, a decision, and then and then you know this is how uh, the society should be built, in my in my opinion, and. Uh, in, in these kind of models, uh, spirituality or religion was really the enemy because it was uh, used in, in history uh, as a way of oppressing people and stopping them from being, um, finding their power, you know, church as we know, Christian church, that's what they did. And, um, and so I was in that phase very adamant about, you know, Religion is opium for the people. <laughs> we have to liberate ourselves. And uh, and then, um, you know, I had this friend and she said, let's go to this bioenergetic, this is really good. And and so I um, did that. And that what they do, they, they, they ask you to put your body into stress position. So you have to lean against the wall and then go down and get then a lot of tensions in your legs. You know, and then when the when the pain and tension become unbearable, you're meant to scream. So everybody was screaming at the top of their lungs. It's like a madhouse. <laughs> <laughs> and as you scream, you know, all the unconscious stuff comes up into your mind. You you start remembering traumas. I mean, that's a theory, and it definitely worked for me. It doesn't work for everybody. But I was, I was, I, I mean, I can see I was already in this process. My unconscious mind had already opened. So there was no barrier. So the stuff came up and, oh my God. And then I was a bit overwhelmed for some time. You know, I, I had all these, you know, uh, memories from being like a child, uh, like a baby, being abandoned. If that happened or not, I don't know. But I mean, obviously I've, I'm born in the 60s. And it was common practice when the children scream, you you put them in the pram at the bottom of the garden and, and leave them there. But that, that, that is what people did, you know. They didn't do anything of looking after the needs of a baby or breastfeeding on demand, you know, forget about all that. And uh, anyway, it's all these memories, memories, are so um, what I thought were memories came up and, and I felt distraught. And uh, and I felt I, I had an existential crisis. You know, I couldn't couldn't function. I mean, I was so in despair. And in in this despair, there was only one rescue, and that was uh, you know God or the, a divine mother or a divine being that would take care of me in my agony. And so <laughs> reluctantly. <laughs> this prideful atheist ego came down with a big crash and I took refuge in, in this in, in this divine presence that I suddenly started to feel you know because all these spiritual experiences became very real before it might have been like a theory maybe there's a god maybe there isn't nobody knows but through the consciousness expansion it wasn't just a theory I could I could feel that being and I, I also could feel um, all sorts of other beings. I started to see spirits and ghosts around me. And, and I think I was thinking, oh my God, what's happening here? And I'm going mad. So I, told, I, I, I talked to a friend about, about it and she said, 
don't worry about it. Just if you don't like it, just say no. Say just say no. And okay. And that's what I did. I said no, 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 <laughs> no more spirits. And um, so it didn't frighten me too much, but it frightened me a bit. But uh, somehow I had good karma. I got that guidance very quickly through that friend and I didn't have some sort of therapist who said, you know, you, you are psychotic, you need to go whatever into psychiatry. Uh, luckily I was spared from all of these experiences and uh, very quickly that all these spirit experiences went away because I said no. And, uh, and then, then, I, then I felt like, yes, I want to go the spiritual path. And I went in my hometown to various different groups. There was a Sufi group and, and Osho was very big at the time. So I went there a little bit. And then somebody said, you know, there's a llama in town. Don't you want to go? And I said, a llama? What's a llama? <laughs> I thought about this animal llama. And that went past me. And then I, don't, I think a few months later, uh, she said, do you want to come along to this Buddhist center? Okay, let's go there. And uh, so I went to this Buddhist center and they did the medicine Buddha. And they uh, did it in German, so in our own language. And they said, there's light coming from the head of the medicine Buddha going in your head from his throat, a beam of light is going into your throat from his heart, a beam of light in your heart. And I was, I was smitten. I was feeling, that's it. That's what I want to do until the age, uh, until I die, you know, working with the chakras. Obviously, that's an old memory that came up, you know, uh, you know, knowing that there are chakras. At the time, people didn't talk about chakras, you know. They, this was all still a new age, was only starting then. And, um, but for me, it was a recognition. I felt like that's wonderful. And that's the kind of thing that I want to do. I want to work with my chakras. And, uh, and I felt, oh, I have some sort of wall in my heart chakra. This isn't, this isn't really open. And how can we open this? And, you know, and um, then, um, you know, there were many young people in that Buddhist center. They were very nice. And then there was a special there, there were a group of them. They went with a certain teacher. And, and they said, he has got his center in Vidodonia in France. Do you want to come? Yes, I want to come. And so I, I became part of that speci uh, specific group. With, uh, this, in this group, he also mixed very much psychotherapy and, and Buddhist teaching. And he did also a lot of, um, maybe you could call it humor therapy. So we, were, we always were kind of gently forced to laugh about everything and instead of taking ourselves so seriously. And, and, that, and, and this teacher, in hindsight, I can say, I, uh, he also had awakened Kundalini. You know, I can see the silent symptoms. And so the way he taught was very beneficial for me because it was addressing the issues that I had. Maybe not so good for the others, but I benefited enormously from this group. And so um, I was in there for three years. And after, after these three years, all these symptoms and psychological problems, they were all good then. I was, I was very good. I was in a positive state of mind. I was wanting to take on the world. And uh, so that was quite good. That's very interesting. You write about that period in Enlightenment to the Path of Kundalini. And you mentioned this teacher worked with us using unorthodox methods, freely mixing 
Eastern meditative approaches with Western radical forms of psychotherapy. And you list a few of them. Uh, he taught you from Gopi Krishna's book, uh, which came out. And you also write, at some point, my teacher trained with Mantak Chia, who taught energy and Kundalini practices from a Taoist point of view, I suppose. The, my, we all practiced diligently in this deepening and calmed my own Kundalini process and benefited me greatly. Yeah, I'm curious about that. You don't name the teacher, actually. You're, you're, and I wonder if that's deliberate. Is that teacher still at large teaching uh, these days? Uh, the name of the teacher is Willy Trinan, and he turned away from Buddhism afterwards, and he became a devout Christian. <laughs> so um, I'm not so sure he would have liked to be mentioned in that group, you know, in that book, uh, you know, as a Buddhist teacher. So I thought I protect his identity because if he's Christian, he, uh, again, he has uh, students, and if his students see that he was with his teacher maybe maybe they didn't wouldn't like it i don't know uh yes so um you know he um really he um did a lot of things um one thing was this humor stuff so we had so much fun i can't even tell you we laughed he, in hysterical <laughs> rolling on the ground laughter type of thing and uh and he um helped he was very much also into helping people to free their sexuality. So sex was a big topic, and but it wasn't anything to do with free sex. So it was we, had, we stayed in monogamous relationships, but uh, you know we talked a lot about sex. Let's say that. <laughs> and uh, and then he had a lot of naturopathic uh, approaches. So he helped us to all get healthier with uh, with nutrition and with certain supplements. And at those days. Nobody talked about supplements. I mean, now it's a big thing, but not, not then. And so it helped me to be on this path of healthier living and, uh, you know, at an early age, which is I'm really grateful for. And then he trained with Mantak Chia, who is a, a Taoist teacher. And he has written also a number of bestseller books. Um, and uh, so, yes, and, and this is basically... Um, you know, learning to circulate the energy in certain energy um, places in the body. And so I learned that and uh, he taught the inner smile, which was also very good and various other things. And so I got a, a big number of uh, various um, approaches that we learned. And then obviously we also did the uh, Buddhist teachings and, and and really brought this all together, and um, that, that was very good. You mentioned the book, or you hint anyway, that that, that group dissolved uh, somewhat acrimoniously. Is that fair to say? Yes. So part of the group there, they lived with him in the Dordogne, and they had business together, and um, and and it and they started to have troubles with that. So did the, you know weaving together of all sorts of things and living together and finances and and then things went wrong people got uh, you know resentful and felt exploited and uh, i also felt you know that he was in his therapy for myself that it became too domineering you know i mean there was a certain amount of force that he put on us let's just say you, you wanted to talk about the problem, like in a psychotherapeutic setting. And then he said, oh, take this guitar, make a, a nice song out of it. 
So you you had to get over your ego saying, I'm having this, but this is a real problem. I don't want to make a funny sound, a song about it. But, you know, this pushing was actually was quite good, you know, because it helps you to get out of that shell of victim identity. And, and, and he, at some point, he became too forceful with that. You know, he... Um, pushed people too fast and too, too too hard in that respect. And so I felt for me, it was time to go. And uh, and then there were lots of resentments around the, the money, uh, which many others had as well. So the whole, whole thing dissolved. What happened next? You left that group at 29, or you emerged from that group at 29. And it was a little bit of time before you met Rigtsin Shikpo, the next figure, spiritually speaking, I suppose, in your journey. What happened after you left that group and how was it you encountered Rigtsin Shikpo? So um, when I uh, um, left that group, uh, then I, um, there was another teacher in Germany, which he was very big. His name is Ole Niedal. He's actually the one who founded loads and loads of centers in basically around the world, but not in England for some reason. He didn't <laughs> missionize England. I think now there's a few groups, but uh, in, in Germany, in every town is an Ole Nidal center. And uh, so so I went along with that and, and I traveled with him. We went uh, two, two months through, uh, through Russia in 1990, when Russia was just about to come out of the Soviet Union. And uh, so that was very interesting. And we went to Nepal and Sikkim. And so that was also a very important um, life-changing experience. And, and then I, um, you know, there's, there's this saying that if you know your teacher, you know, somebody mentions the name of your teacher and then you hear it and you think, oh, I have to go to that person. And that's really what happened with Vixen Chikpo. I, I was in some Buddhist center and somebody just mentioned that name and said the English, uh, you know, it's also a couple with his wife, Shempen, and uh, and they're teaching. And I felt like I need to go there. So that's what I did. And and then uh, Shempen and uh, Rick and Chikwa, they split up uh, later, unfortunately. They, um, they're taught in England and also in Germany. And I became very much, in, you know, engrossed in their, their teachings. And basically what they did, um, but this was Mahayana Buddhism, so it was all about loving kindness, and um, and I found that very valuable and very good. And another thing that Rick Chikpo also taught me was uh, what in Buddhism we call wish practice, and in the New Age we call that law of attraction. So the law of attraction obviously can be used and often is taught in a way that's morally dodgy, you know, where you think well. You know, I can get greedy with that and want this and this and this. And where's the spiritual dimension in that? But when you when you do the wish practice in the Buddhist context, then you um, you have that the spiritual dimension with that wish practice together. So basically, what you're doing is you're using your desire energy to fulfill your desire, and at the same time, you get what you want. It's a pretty neat system, if you ask me. If anybody's interested, I've written a book about it. You know, it's called advanced manifesting. So it's all detailed in there. So basically it works by, you know, adding to your own wishes always an altruistic dimension. And, and ask, my, ask myself, if I want to, if I want this job, how can I benefit others with this work? Or if I want this and that, how can I 
make this good for everybody, you know, so to have this altruistic motivation with us. And, and then your own wish fulfillment become, becomes a way of spiritual growth. And so I learned that from Oviks and Chipo, which I'm extremely grateful for. And, uh, and in, the, in the group, uh, I met my husband, which is a nice love story. <laughs> and, uh, and my husband, uh, he, he then said, oh, he wants to have the Dzogchen uh, initiation, you know, the, which is the, the highest pass in, in, in Tibetan Buddhism. And Oviks and Chipo didn't give us that at the time my husband you know there there is other teachers who can give us this if you want that and this is how we met the next teacher Gautam Rinpoche and um and uh he he gave us this uh, transmission to um this state of Dzogchen which is experienced as a state of bliss and um spiritual bliss in which you also have wisdom and in which you lose the, the sense of your own limited, limiting um, identity that you somehow associate with your own name and your own body and own history and memories. And you can just transcend all that and, and delve into this uh, expansive experience. And so that that's what I got from the next teacher, Gacha Rinpoche. <laughs> Can you tell the story of how it, how it was you met him and, and received that, what I presume is pointing out instructions? Yes, so um, this was actually, again, a similar story that another friend of mine, she said, there's this teacher and he was 20 years in, in prison in, in China, which is very sad, really. And uh, while, while he was there, he was practicing all the time and, and he is um, very enlightened and uh, he's quite amazing. and. And, and again, I felt I have to meet this teacher and I didn't, I, I just need to say, that sounds like, oh, that happens all the time to you. No, this only happened twice to me, you know, with Rick and Chikbo and with Gautam Rinpoche. And, um, and then, uh, you know, so, she, so uh, she said he will come to give a workshop um, in, in half a year. It wasn't like now where, where you can have everything instantly on, on YouTube or, <laughs> or in some online class or some description. Uh, so then I had to wait for half a year. And in that time, I started to talk to him telepathically, if you want to call it that way, you could say pray to him and, uh, you know, ask him for advice. What, how should I meditate? And uh, then I heard uh, him saying, you know, in my, in my head, in my heart, just be happy. And, and I thought, oh, that's a nice advice. Let's, let's try that then. <laughs> and then, uh, and then uh, I, I noticed that it was very easy and I could do it. And, um, and, and this, the happiness did, you know, developed into bliss and, and that developed into amazing states of spiritual realizations and more bliss and uh, and all the chakras ablaze and um and it, you know it was quite wonderful it was complete spiritual honeymoon if you want to say uh say it that way and uh, and and then you know half a year later i then met Rick and chico you know in person and i told him what i experienced in my meditation and he he 
said that's very good you are on the right path and you gave me his explanation to it and 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 he really put his seal of approval about on this and then um i think a year a few years i don't know exactly one or two or three years later you know he said you know he, he wants me to teach he thinks that's all very good and i need to bring this out to others and um yeah, so that was the story about Gatshul uh, Pache. <laughs> That's amazing. Did he acknowledge that telepathic communication or he acknowledged the fruits of, of that? Uh, I, I didn't tell him that. I didn't tell him that I talked to him in my mind. I thought that might, might be a bit weird in my first interview. <laughs> I just said to him, this is the experiences that I have and whether you could comment on it and, and explain to me what they are. And then <clears throat> he said, this is, this is the Mahamudra or Sokjan experience. But maybe I just should say a little bit, you know, I said I had this honeymoon of these experiences because it's important also to understand um, this, this bliss, it also brings up stuff. It empties your chakras even further and it's not like that it was only a free ride from then on, you know, I had, uh, you know, more things came up, more challenges, and uh, I had to work through that. And um, so it's basically the more you you develop into the higher states of consciousness, the more um, wonderful, blissful experiences you get, the more your unconscious mind opens as well. And your unconscious mind is very very big you know there's so much stuff in there you think oh, how, how does that how is that possible that i have all these dark and horrible feelings in me and uh, it's just you know the unconscious mind is you know been filled up for <laughs> thousands or millions of lifetimes with stuff you know and now uh, maybe this is one of the first life that i that i have really the opportunity to get to that material and in order for, for that to release that, it always has to pass by your conscious mind. You cannot just say, oh, the unconscious mind, just get it all out. I don't even know, want to know what it is. This, this can't be done. You know, if you just imagine it's like a massive garage full of rubbish, you know, you have to take truly every piece and take it out and put it in a rubbish bag or into your car, drive it to the dump and throw it away. And, um, and the same is true for our mind. Our, our this unconscious mind it has to be seen by the conscious mind acknowledged and then let go and this uh, letting go is not always easy particularly when this 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 material is um very sticky let's just say old anger you know that we've repressed for lifetimes because we want to be civil uh, civilized people we have to repress our aggressive impulses you know and uh, and and this this repressed anger um can be experienced a little bit like tar or resin in your body very sticky you know very you know difficult to to remove so you have to spend quite a bit of time with that to release it to relax it and to let it go and um so so there's still work to do but the the blissful experience remains uh, you know, either the foreground of your experience or the background in your experience. It's not like you lose it again, you know, even when these kinds of experiences come to the fore. Oh, interesting. So there's always that context of bliss. It's not an alternating between bliss and then some sort of purification. It's occurring simultaneously. It, it, can, it can be 
felt as an alternation, you know, that uh, for some time you get engulfed in horrible feelings. But then, you know, you have the memory of that and you know that that is your true nature. That's what you tru truly are. And then you can come back to it, you know, particularly when you also understand how this process of letting go works, then you just let it go. You do, do the work and then you come back to it. But depending on what comes up, you know, it can also sometimes, you know, cloud your mind a little bit. Mm. You can you can uh, imagine it like the blue sky that's always there, and then the the problems are like clouds, and sometimes they can cover the whole blue sky, but you do know behind it is the blue sky again. So then you you um, you know the way I see it is just you penetrate whatever glacier or problem you have in your mind with love. That's like the sun is shining through the clouds, warming them up and make them disappear. And then you um, relax whatever in whatever chakra or body part there, there is the problem, you relax it. And that's, that's like the wind is blowing through the clouds and drives them away, so. <laughs> You've just given a very condensed essence, I suppose, of your general approach, relaxing, and then this sort of inner smile, loving disposition, loving attention. Would you say that those, of course, there's a lot more to it than that, but would you say that that's the, that's the essence of your approach in dealing with obstructions or difficulties uh, with your clients? Um, that's certainly one essence. Uh, another essence, which is also important, is to develop a deep loving connection with your higher consciousness by whatever name you call it. You know, there's lots of people uh, um, who, who feel they can have a spiritual development without that connection to a higher being or think, oh, we can do it away with that. Uh, I, I find this very, um, very, um, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just distracted because I just see this most amazing rainbow over there. <laughs> As I'm saying these words, I see that as a good omen. Yeah. Um, Surely so, that's a good omen when you're talking about Mahmudra. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's a sunny day here in Spain, and I see the ocean. And across the ocean, like that, is a massive rainbow, <laughs> a flat one. Uh, so, yeah, so, so, yes, this connection to a higher being, I see as very essential to have somebody we can in a trusting way, relate to who, who epitomize uh, the good and the, and the true. And um, so that's also very important. And, um, and then to, to, to learn to deal with your energy body through these kind of methods, uh, particularly loving kindness and relaxation, and the relaxation, we, the way we do it is we use certain images for that, for example, and, and a flower that opens. And, um, and this, this energy body can be controlled just as much as we can control our physical body. When we were babies, we couldn't open our hand and close it like that. We had to learn that over many years, right? And, uh, and in the same way, most people are completely in capable or don't, don't know at all how to uh, control their, their inner body, their emotional or energy body. And if an, a negative, negative emotion rolls along, you know, um, anger, anxiety, depression, they're helplessly at the mercy of that. 
but we are not, you know, we can learn to control and get rid of these emotions just as much as we can lift our arm when we say, I want to lift my arm so I can do that easily, right? And in the same way, you can say, oh, I have a little bit of anxiety here, just let's open the flower and it's gone. And if you, be, if you, if you become very proficient at that, you know, one little look at the emotion is enough for that to disperse. And in Tibetan Buddhism, we call that self-liberating. So that's when you're really good, when you, when you learn to ride a skateboard and you make tricks, you know, that, that's, you know, how you can just get rid of the negative emotions in the moment of their arising. And, uh, and so when we are a little bit at the beginning of learning to ride a skateboard and then we have certain little exercises. And so, um, so that's what I'm teaching my clients really. So I have a, a number of exercises, anti-anxiety uh, exercise, anti-depression uh, exercise, anti-anger, uh, anger for people, anger for, you know, just generally, you know, like irritation, just being irritated overall, not to anybody specifically or anger at yourself, you know, for all of that, I have specific exercises. And if you get good at them, they all eventually merge more and more together and become, you know, a proficiency to kind of control our inner energy body and and free ourselves from these kind of problems that we experience in it. I expect there's no substitute for working one-on-one -on -one in a guided and customized way, but quite a lot of the general principles in some of these exercises are in your books, healing uh, Kundalini symptoms and um, enlightenment through the path of Kundalini. Is that right? Yes, yes, that's right. They're all in the book. There's also another one, it's called Higher Consciousness Healing, uh, which is not specifically for Kundalini symptoms, but for for anybody who wants to get rid of anxiety or all the other emotions and, and also f uh, physical pain and tiredness that works with that as well. And um, so, yeah, so they are all in there. Uh, and if people work with me one-to-one, -one, it's, you know, it's not strictly necessary. People could in principle get it all from the book, but obviously some people quite like to have the personal guidance and that's why I do the sessions. You write in, in uh, Enlightenment through the Path of Kundalini that you asked Garcha Rinpoche for Tummo initiation and, uh, when you were 42. And he did explain that to you and you practiced it. But actually you found it to be a little forceful and strong and it sent you into quite a challenging period. Could you talk a bit about, about what was the procedure that he, he taught you and what were its consequences? Well, um, when I asked him about the Tummo, he gave me uh, an explanation that lasted, I don't know, maybe five minutes. <laughs> and that was not enough. I mean, but he has thousands of students and he doesn't have so much time. So that was a bit of a drawback. And, uh, and he, I've heard sub subsequently that he has actually taught it publicly. But when I was at his workshops, I never got these, these teachings publicly. So I, I think, you know, I didn't get enough teachings to do that. And also... The Tumor exercise is the Tibetan Buddhist equivalent of the Kundalini awakening. Um, so Lama Glenn, who you also interview here a lot, so he said actually the, the Hindu people got it from the Buddhists and the Buddhist, when the Buddhists were still in, in India around, I don't know, maybe 800 or something. And, and the, the Buddhists called it Chandali and then the, 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 uh, the Hindu people got it from the Buddhists and called it Kundalini. 
uh, whether that's true. I mean, Glenn is, Lama Glenn is the, the authority, he's the expert on that. Um, um, so basically when you do the, and then they called it Tumo um, in Tibetan. And um, that is the Tibetan Buddhist Kundalini awakening practice. So if somebody like myself who already had a Kundalini awakening uh, does this type of practice, it just really fans this whole process. And the, the way I describe that, and that's no offense, it's just a metaphor, okay? That I say before the Kundalini, we are an ice block. So I don't wanna insult anybody. It's just helpful to see it that way. So I like an ice block where, where everything is numb and stiff. And then, um, and then in the Kundalini process, this ice starts to melt. And when it melts in the water, the water are these, all these emotions that have been repressed. And so that person will find themselves engulfed in lots and lots of negative emotions, plus also wonderful, blissful emotions. And of course, we all want the bliss. We don't want the negative emotions. <laughs> but uh, it goes back and forth. It oscillates. And uh, I'm using the model of a hourglass to explain that, you know, so I say our, our personality is like an hourglass, you know, in the top part of the hourglass, we have our higher consciousness, where, where all the wonderful, blissful spiritual experiences are. And in the lower part of the hourglass, there's our unconscious mind. And this is where, where the, all the repressed stuff uh, is because we don't want to experience that. And the person who is like very atheistic and very materialistic, they're identified with just that little small bit in the middle. And they say, unconscious mind or shadow side, I don't have one. And, and, and God, God is dead. <laughs> so, but then all of that doesn't exist, but it's not true. They're, they're just unaware of it. And now when, when somebody is, gets into this process, and that's not only so kundalini kundalini is just when it's becoming very massive even if somebody just goes on a meditation course or starts psychotherapy this unconscious material starts to melt and uh and then unconscious stuff comes up from from the unco from the unconscious mind so the the ice at the bottom melts but later the ice always melts up and down in the, simultaneously so you, maybe you go to a psychotherapy workshop about shadow work, deep, deep digging into your unconscious mind. And then later you go for a beautiful walk in nature and then suddenly you think the nature looks like paradise. You've, you get such blissful experiences that you, you never had before because the ice melts in both areas simultaneously. Or you go on a meditation course and, and um, <clears throat> delve into visions of divine and, and, and visualizations and so forth. And then, and, and then at night you feel all the unconscious stuff coming up. So this is always coming together. It goes up and down, oscillates. And that's often a period in, in people's uh, uh, development where, where they think, is this really going in the right direction? Am I going mad here? The answer is you go in the right direction. This is all going very well. This is how it's supposed to go. You know, you get the cookies, the bliss, and then you do some homework that's dealing with the unconscious material. And so it goes up and down and up and down. And um, back to your question. So when, when I did the tumor uh, with Gata Rinpoche, then um, 
you know, you know what, what, Steve? Can we just interrupt the 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 um, the sure. for a moment? And I just show you this video, this this rainbows because they are amazing. I don't <laughs> know if you can see them. Do you want to see them? Yeah, of course. Because they're really distracting me. Because I've never, <laughs> seen, I've never seen anything like that. So, can 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 you see the ocean, right? Mm -hmm. So they're they're kind of lying. There's like clouds lying on the on the ocean, and, and wow, that's quite amazing, actually. It's amazing, isn't it? So I just um, I thought I need to share that. So obviously, we always see things like that. It's a good omen. <laughs> well, when you're talking about Zogchen and Mahamudra, yeah, rainbows. I think it's generally a good sign. <laughs> Yeah, but these are special rainbows, right? Clouds that lie on the water in rainbow colors. Where were we? <laughs> you were talking about Tumo and that having already had your Kundalini awakened, it fanned the flames. Yeah, so, it, mm -hmm. yeah so when Garchan Rinpoche taught me the Tumo exercises and then a lot of unconscious stuff came up again. And um, wrongly, I, you know, interpreted that as no, I don't think wrongly, but, you know, I felt like I need to ease, ease up a little bit with that. You know, this is uh, bringing up um, depressive feelings and I don't know where they're coming from. And, uh, but you see, the thing is our chakras are deep and wide. They are like Doctor Who type TARDIS. <laughs> they're not just little, little parts in our body, you know, they're, they're a reservoir of, deep memories and and you know wrong attitudes or or confusion and so on and we have to work through that and um at the time um you know i experienced also uh, problems in my career because my publisher didn't want to have any more books for me and uh, we had moved to the country and i uh, didn't have so many clients anymore and i thought oh what, what do I do now? So that, that was a bit difficult, but I'm not sure that that was um, directly from um, my um, two more experiments. But um, you can never tell, you know, because, you know, these, these challenges, they're, they're, they're manifest in the outside world and um, also on, on the inside world. At the time, my husband also had his Kundalini awakening. And so he went through all sorts of stuff coming up and that rambled our marriage a bit, you know, so we had to do quite a bit of relationship um, work and, uh, you know, to get that in order again. And also uh, for him to understand his own process because that was quite dis disconcerting for him because uh, a lot of anger came up from, from him and he, he always considered himself this very nice gentleman, which in principle he is, but suddenly there was all this rage and, uh, you know, so, so things like that can come up as well and, and it can be, you know, if, that, if people don't know what that is, it can be very destructive. Yes, you're right. The rest of my life did not go to plan. I'm sort of sliding in here to where you're up to with the narrative. For some reason, I seemed to lose my manifesting abilities and my entire life seemed to grind to a halt that lasted for almost eight years. I developed much oversensitivity of which aversion to noise was the most prominent and felt very alienated from my surroundings. To make matters even more challenging, the relationship with my husband needed a complete overhaul because I was... <laughs> 
because I was rapidly developing under the influence of the Kundalini, and he was not. I suppose this is prior to his awakening that you mentioned there. Due to my clairvoyant abilities, I became able to look deeply into his unconscious mind, and what I saw was not pretty. Needless to say, my husband was not very enthusiastic about these developments either. But with time, he accepted my newfound wisdom and embraced his own development on a deeper level. I'm wondering if you could talk about that. I think that's a very interesting mismatch, I suppose, you're describing between where, where, where you were uh, at, if you like, where you were oriented and where he was oriented. And I'm curious about how you navigated that. And also, I'm curious how your husband, Nigel, what, how did his Kundalini awaken? And you must have had a front row seat in that whole process. And how was that whole process? Seeing as you bring it up, I'm very curious about it. Yeah, so uh, what I described there, what you just read out, that, that was before his Kundalini awakening and culminated in his Kundalini awakening. But then his Kundalini awakening, it was not easy for him, you know. So, um, you know, the, 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 the Kundalini work belongs to what we call in Buddhism Tantra. And Tantra means weaving, weaving everything together. So we weave together relationships and spirituality, sexuality and spirituality, working and, and so on. So we don't lock ourselves away in some monastery or ashram. We, we combine our ordinary householder lives with spirituality. And it's considered the fastest way because, um, you know, if, you, if you're locked away somewhere, then you, you just take so many challenges away from, from your life that, uh, uh, that, you know, you cannot develop as a complete person. And, um, and so in these tantric relationships, so historically speaking, that was between the the uh, years 800 to 1200 in India. And, uh, and in, in, these, uh, in this development, women really take the front seat. You know, women become teachers, spiritual teachers. They are more talented, if you want to say. And uh, uh, I can see that also in my clients. But maybe I should uh, say that a bit more carefully and saying the person with the stronger developed feminine side and that can be the man that occasionally that can be a man, but let's say a man has a very, very strong contact to his emotions, to his intu intuition, has a very strong caring uh, feelings and so on. And maybe the woman is more outgoing, more robust and bringing in the money and, and is maybe more aggressive or something like that. You know, that's possible too. So it is the person with stronger feminine side, and that's usually the woman. And so in, in our relationship with my husband, that was no difference. You know, I was, uh, you know, through my intuition, more deeply rooted in my spiritual development. And my, my husband, um, I mean, he also had to work hard. You know, he, he kindly offered to be the breadwinner of the family. And I, I was allowed to write my spiritual books. That was very kind of him. But so, you know, to do that, you also have to be a bit tough and robust and cannot be, allow yourself, cannot afford to be so super sensitive. And uh, so naturally, I, I, my spiritual development went uh, on faster than his. And, um, and, and I, I was encouraging and I said, look, let's, these, these blissful experiences, they're, they're quite wonderful and this is how you get to it. And then he said, nah, not so, not so interested. <laughs> I said, 
yes, yes, you, you should, you know, you have this, you're often tired, you should try this, this is wonderful. Okay, eventually he, but that product took some time. And, um, and then, um, you know, then eventually he, 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 he started to practice. And that's how his Kundalini then awakened because he got very profound, deep, blissful experiences. But simultaneously, some sort of uh, anger that we both hadn't seen in him before came up as well. And that, that created quite a bit of, you know, waves in our relationship that had to be calmed down, you know. And, uh, and you know, we also said, you know, you need to go a bit more slowly because, you know, in order to integrate all of this. And, uh, and so we, we went back and forth between, you know, um, you know, uh, in principle, he accepted me as his teacher, but then his ego didn't like that so much, you know. And so there was quite a bit of jerky movements. <laughs> but we, we got over that phase quite well. You know, he's working with me now as a Kundalini therapist and, uh, and it's, it's um, very good. And it's, it's something that I can only recommend uh, to, to other couples as well to kind of make the relationship a vehicle of mutual spiritual growth that the person who has more loving kindness, more wisdom should be the leader and should uh, guide and help the other one who doesn't have that, so is more unhappy. And the one who is more unhappy should be humbly and gratefully receive these teachings. And that's often not so easy, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I said to my husband, you know, if, if you were further ahead, I would love it. You know, I could just sit back and learn from you. But that's exactly the problem, you know, because it's the ego that doesn't allow us to kind of say somebody is further ahead and can teach us something. And if the ego is in the way then and stops that problem, uh, that, that process, then, then that's not so easy. But that's the material that you need to work with, you, with patience, with you know, trying to talk about it, um, trying to approach it from this angle and that angle and that angle, and then gradually rub this ego away because the ego cannot be, you can't just take an ax and hack it off. You know, that would be nice if that would work. It's more uh, like a sanding process, like with sanding paper, you know, it just takes forever. And, um, and, you know, it's it's many small steps and bit by bit. You know, the the old, you know, unconscious instinctive responses of you criticize me now, I don't like it, da da da, <laughs> into a considered. Hmm, let me think what you just said. Yeah, I can see it from your perspective, but that doesn't come so easy. You know, that is a process that needs to be trained. And it requires a lot of patience and humility on both sides. But if, if a couple is willing to do this process together, it is, it's, I think it's the fastest way to develop because your own partner is the, your best spiritual teacher because nobody else sees all your little selfish little things that you still allow yourselves and the little manipulations and the little excuses or the big ones. Uh, and, uh, you know, and the, the partner can say here you're manipulating me again don't do that no I didn't do anything I'm completely innocent <laughs> no you're not <laughs> and so it goes on 
And, you know, in, in, in an ordinary couple, you know, that might lead them to com complete breakdown of the relationship and lots of arguments. But if you are both dedicated to the spiritual path, we can use exactly these, these conflicts and go really deeply into them and, uh, and try to penetrate them with awareness. Because when we, when we react in this knee-jerk way of like, I'm, I'm criticized, I'm angry now, you know, what you need is a little bit of space to see this reactivity and to say, okay, I can step back from that and, and really consider the other person's perspective on this. But if you're you know, in your reptile brain in fight and flight mode, then you can't. And, and, and when that can be trained. And, and, and I think a couple relationship is a great place to train that because where else did you get provoked in this way? You know, if you, if you get provoked like this way, in your job, you, you change your job, you know? Or if you have horrible neighbors who always annoy you, then you, you move. But if you want to keep your relationship, then you stay and then you can do this work. Very interesting. You know, uh, I'm aware of the time and uh, there's still so much I think we could talk about. I'd like, if you don't mind, to finish up a couple of biographical points in this episode and perhaps I might uh, petition you for a sequel to talk more directly about your work with uh, clients of, in the Kundalini and so on, like a kind of Kundalini survival guide. Maybe we could do something like that. That I think would be very interesting. Do you mind if we cover a couple more biographical points? Yes, sure. Yeah, just take as long as you like. All right. What happened two years ago? You mentioned that you had another influx, you said, of Kundalini two years ago. What occurred then? Yes. Yeah, so. Um... From from this, um, you know, let, let's say the last 20 years, I, I had an awful lot of bliss and I also had a, an awful lot of wish fulfillments and all my wishes came true. And, um, and really, I, my life was blessed. And, uh, and I felt really on some sort of plateau, you could say, and um, of, of, very good accomplishment and uh and what happened is that i uh the, you know the 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 teacher ama the hugging saint you know i i was thinking she is possibly the most enlightened person on this earth at the moment alive as far as i know and i really should go and see her but i was also a little apprehensive <laughs> because i know the the uh the influence that that can have on people. So I went and I didn't get a hug. I just watched her from the distance. So we stayed for a weekend. And then afterwards, uh, the whole Kundalini influx started very strongly again. So um, this time, some my the navel chakra and the root chakra was really very much affected. And these were chakras particularly the root chakra that I hadn't really worked so much with before. And um, more so, and, and also the um, solar plexus. So all the lower chakras really they were affected. And, um, and let's just say my upper chakras there are a little bit better developed and the lower chakras not so good, which is typical for women, by the way, you know, for, for men is often the other way around. And uh, and so it brought up all the unconscious uh, stuff from the from the lower chakras in the last two years. You know, I, I feel at you know at the end, but you know now this is very much subsided again. 
And, you know, uh, I was uh, quite surprised. And, uh, you know, when the root chakra, the root chakra, I call the drama queen of the chakras, you know, the, the, the root chakra, when, when that plays up, it brings up um, this feeling with this, so, so, some sort of dramatic, as if you watch a horror film, really. <laughs> and uh, so that took me a bit by surprise. But, I mean, I always um, think that whatever happens to me is all good stuff because I can use that to help others, you know, if I've been through it. So then I can counsel my clients or, or also occasionally have root chakra problems and I can say to them, look, that's a drama queen, you know, don't don't get upset, you know, if that starts firing. Um, it, has, it always likes to have a bit of a horror film down there <laughs> in on the negative side. You know? And, um, but on the positive side, it is also the, the, the seat of our Kundalini energy and together with the navel chakras, you know, just lumped together in the Tibetan Buddhist system, you know, it's between the navel and the perineum. That's where they call it, is the navel chakra. And, and that is basically the whole uh, lower abdomen. And, um, and so if you develop that chakra better, you, you, get, you get more special powers you know and uh you can get get more manifesting powers and you can get also the powers to have cds you know the supernatural powers so if you really want to develop further you have to develop the lower chakras more and uh and that is also important once you have developed the higher chakras you know you should also develop the lower chakras but as i said they are not without challenges because there's also a lot of anger in them really so animal type aggression you know like ah, <laughs> no, I want to kill you <laughs> oh what's that <laughs> and uh, yeah so all of these kind of feelings came up so I experimented with them a little bit wrestled them into submission <laughs> and uh, you know used it, the techniques that I'm using and to kind of learn. And then all this energy that was bound in this, in this unconscious part, blind spots of your chakra system or energy system, it becomes then free and you, know, you get it at your disposal and you can use it to, to, um, you know, to do what you want to do. You know? You know, you want to maybe, I don't know, maybe somebody wants to open a spiritual ashram or something, then they, they need some spiritual power for that. Can you say a little bit more about that? About what? Well, <laughs> I suppose the specifics of your experience, you've given a general sort of bird's eye view there. I'm curious, especially that you're, you're so experienced with this process, for it to have been quite intense for you it must have been really rather intense so i'm curious what specifically were you experiencing uh, after uh, strong anxiety uh, and, and i had anxiety before in my life but it was in different chakras it was uh, you know you can experience anxiety for example in the throat chakra in the in the heart chakra and many people particularly also in the, in the solar plexus chakra and uh, but the anxiety that comes from the root chakra is much more intense. It's, it's anxiety that makes you feel paralyzed. It's just, you know, like, as I said, like out of a horror film, you know, there's some, some dread maybe is a word for that. So gruesome, dreadful anxiety, just, as I said, drama queen. 
And, uh, but because I, I know these kind of things, you know, I wasn't taking in too much, you know, I was, I was thinking, okay, that's anxiety. Oh, that's very strong. And, um, uh, and, and it's also some anxiety that I didn't experience before, but basically I use the same techniques that I describe in the book. There's an anxiety, um, anti-anxiety technique, which basically works by very much slowing down your breath, really taking out the energy that the, that the body needs to, uh, to, to produce these kind of feelings. If you take that out, the anxiety cannot unfold. And then, you know, with this, with the lower chakras, you know, you open flower downwards, open it, open it, open it, and then you know it doesn't want to open, and you just need to persist. You know, you just need, just need to do the exercises basically, and uh, and then then it, then it rumbles on for a little while, and then eventually it stops. You win. But you know, I I I see it uh, like that. You know. When you, when you are in the bliss experience, this is driving your car in fourth gear. That's just really easy. You cruise, you know, no problem. And, uh, and then maybe your car grinds to a halt for some reason. And that's like, you can't get access to the bliss. You feel bad. And then you need first gear. First gear is just relax, you know, just relax. Second gear, um, do some loving kindness exercises penetrate whatever you experience with the kindness or or just as if you're like a mother caressing that particular feeling let's say the anxiety like love envelope the whole thing with love and kindness and uh third gear determine which chakra is here the problem open open the chakra flower like that you know so work with the energy directly release, relax, whatever, you know, because the negative feelings are always just tensions in the different chakras. So the aunt is always relaxed in it. That's third gear. And when you can all do this quite easily, go back to fourth gear, bliss. And so the last four, two years, it was, you know, there was plenty of bliss between those stages. And then um, let's say I wake up again in the morning with some, horrible feeling in my lower abdomen despair anxiety and then I think okay let's do my own exercises and I haven't needed to do them for some time but that's what they're there for and that's what I did and um and so then in the meditation I would just work on that and let that all go and come back to the blue sky get rid of all the clouds and then later the, the, all the clouds would come back and but eventually, you know, if you if you know these techniques and you use them persistently, then then you 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 get rid of all the clouds and then you come back to the blue sky. Hmm. Well, fascinating indeed. So, you know, I think I must petition you for a sequel because you brought up City, and uh, that's something I think would be fabulous to talk about in in some detail. And also, um, your work with clients coming to you with various different kundalini crises, etc. I think there's a lot of interesting things to talk about there. So perhaps as we're coming near the end of our conversation, I think another important biographical point, perhaps the last one to mention today, is White Tara, your relationship with White Tara, which you write about in Enlightenment through the path of kundalini awakening. And um, you talked earlier about 
the connection with the higher power being another one of the core uh, aspects of your overall approach and uh, the idam i suppose you could say this sort of idea you write about white tara after i was into my own kundalini awakening for almost 20 years i received yet another wonderful blessing i became able to directly communicate with my higher power the tibetan buddhist deity white tara and you mentioned that at first it, be, it was quite subtle you had subtle a sense of presence and communication which you make notes of also predictions and so on which you begin to receive and you make notes of them and compare them to what actually happened and that was the sort of initial subtle beginnings but then it became really quite uh, quite a lot more direct and in fact in that book that i referred to you quote channeled material from white tara throughout the book which you produce through automatic writing after working in this way for one or two years, I started to ask White Tara numerous questions about spiritual development. I asked these questions randomly and only transferred them afterwards into an ordered manuscript. All in all, I assembled a book of 250 pages filled with the most condensed bullet points about every aspect of spiritual development, from Kundalini to chakras and from manifesting to enlightenment. Then you also anticipate perhaps some skepticism or criticism about this point. You say, one may ask why I tried to channel all these questions instead of going to a learned Buddhist teacher or trying to find the answers in the Buddhist literature. My problem was that I wanted to find out about the finer points of very advanced teachings, like Kundalini, for example, and these topics are usually not publicly taught in Tibetan Buddhism. The few books that are written about these themes are not so easy to understand, as in Tibetan Buddhism the real meaning of highly esoteric topics is often kept secret by the use of cryptic language that needs to be interpreted by a knowledgeable teacher. The last option of asking all my questions in private interviews with my teacher was also impossible, as Tibetan Buddhist lamas are usually flooded with students and have no time for someone like me who yearns for hundreds of hours of teachings. This is the reason why I turned to channeling White Tara directly. I'm wondering if you could talk about this. Um, of course, much of your, what you've said so far come from your own experience, your own personal experience, and also, I presume, learning from your clients, hearing all their stories, one begins to see patterns and, 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 and produce systems. And also, of course, you, you've learned from your various teachers and you've listed them. I'm curious to, to what degree this channel material um, plays a role in, your, in the conceptualization of your approach, uh, but oh. also, but also, I'm very curious. I mean, how did that all how did that all happen, and what was that experience like? That must have been very interesting indeed. Yes. So um, the the channel material is really the backbone of my work. I couldn't do it without it. You know, I mean, there's not much literature out there about Kundalini, and let alone about um, how it all works. Um, you know, uh, dissolving all the Kundalini symptoms, problems. You know, the, these. You know, I'm not born with that knowledge, you know, and I didn't get it from someone. I, I got that all from the channeling. So all, everything I do with my clients, apart from the, let's say, basic psychotherapeutic counseling, which I have qualifications in, but everything else is from, from the channeling. And, um, and you mentioned cities, you know, um, that I definitely think this is my main city and, um, you know, that I have this, this ability to to talk to Tara and write down what she says to me, and uh, I do that almost every day, in in various ways. And it is the 
the biggest and most profound guidance that I have in, in, in my life. And um, so, I mean, if you go on my website and you, I mean, there's hundreds of testimonials. I have various websites. There's hundreds of testimonials. I could have hundreds more. I stop asking people now. You can see that what I teach does work. It, it does produce the results that we want to have. It, it helps people to feel good again and, and, and empowered and and um, free, free them from, from these mental and physical afflictions. And uh, so that's my, my kind of proof that that is not just all invented stuff and uh, or something that I somehow came up with myself. You know, it does produce the results. It pr produces them in myself and it produces them in my clients. And um, so how did that come about? Um, basically through a deep wish, you know. I, um, I you know, when did that all start? Maybe over 20 years ago. Um, you know, I always had this idea that I have a booklet and then I could just ask a question and just note down the answer and because I, I had lots of questions and, uh, and, and, and I really wished for that to happen. And um, I don't know what in the end motivated me to kind of try this automatic writing. So just ask the question and then put your pen to the paper and then just make that your pen answered your, the question. I just, I, the way I remember it, I just started with that for some reason. And, and then I thought, oh, that's interesting. I didn't think that would come out. And uh, okay. And then just carried on doing that. And um, gradually I amassed a body of knowledge and, uh, and it was all higgledy-piggledy in my journal and, um, and I thought I, sh I should write this down in a proper bullet point type thing, you know, so point one, point one, point one, point one, point one, point two, and so on. And uh, that's what I did. And that was really difficult because it was just chaotic. And then I tried to, uh, and it was a vast amount of stuff, you know, it was uh, enough to fill a, a thick book. And um, not thick book, let's say medium book. And um, so I had a lot of work to do that, but I quite like to do that work. And one thing that I did, because this whole knowledge had sprawled into different directions, like a massive town, you know, this was about reincarnation, this was about the ego and the true self, and this was about the Kundalini, and this was about wish practice. And very easily, while I ask all these questions, there could have been some inconsistencies, right? But I, you know, quite easily saying, oh, well, what I say here about reincarnation doesn't really make sense with the nature of the self here, you know? But that, that was one thing that I did. I probed for inconsistencies and, uh, and, and checked whether this whole big body of knowledge that I amassed had was consistent in, in, in itself. And, and, and I found that, that that was the case. So it obviously, obviously pleased me very much, you know, otherwise the whole exercise would have been in vain. You know, I think I would have thrown it all away if I'd found many contradictions, I would have said, clearly I made it all up. And then another thing that I found is, so because I just, you know, as these questions came up, or maybe I was sitting in the meditation and I, oh, I have this question, just write it down, you know. 
put it to, to side again. Um, uh, I, when I went through all these journals systematically, I noticed that I would ask the same question over and over and over again. I think I can't believe I asked this question at least 10 times here it is again, you know. And so that showed to me that I clearly didn't make up and the answers were all consistent. They were always the same. And that just didn't go into that uh, head here. And then that for me was also a proof that I didn't make these answers up myself because otherwise clearly they would have been in me. I would have not needed to ask the same question over and over again. And I also asking the same question over and over again, I wouldn't have got consistently the same answers. And so that, that was a very uh, satisfying as well for me to see that. And uh, so I wrote this whole thing up in this bullet type thing. I think that has 150, 150 pages, but just bullet points. You know, if you write a book about, proper book about it, it would, I don't know, I think double as long or three times as long. And, um, and you know, and that book is the backbone of my counseling. And that's how I get the results of my clients that I get. And so um, it's absolutely pivotal in, in all of all of what I'm doing you know, from my own development, how I'm feeling, how I get, lead my own life, everything. Fascinating. I'm curious, which language do you write in? Is it German or English? English, English. German is, has become a shadow. <laughs> Um, maybe maybe sometimes I, I if I just spoken to some German person, then maybe I write it to German. So that can happen too. Of course, the history of uh, Buddhist scriptures and tantras, etc., especially in the Tibetan tradition, um, it's not without precedent to receive direct, if you want, dictation almost from. Although that's not quite what you're saying, but that sort of idea <clears throat> from deities, etc., or certainly tantras are, you know. Oh, Manjushri taught this to me, uh, and so the author is Manjushri, but it's written by whoever it is, a teacher or whoever. Mm -hmm. um, so that sort of thing does happen in the distant past. However, let me put it this way, I wonder if you've had any pushback or criticism on that point. You're very open about this, and you write about it in your book, and you don't, you, you, you put it out there. But I wonder if um, from established religious authorities or people who are more oriented in that sort of a way, criticize you for this or uh, feel it undermines what you're doing in some sort of a way. Have you had any any difficulty with that dynamic at all? Not at all, not once. But having said that, I do not teach in the traditional setting. So I'm not uh, going to a Buddhist uh, center and teach a course about Kundalini. Um, I, I, I help people who are in trouble. And that's actually what I also love, you know you know, to teach something from a book, you know, that's not a challenge for me. You know, I, I'd like somebody coming and saying, my mind is a mess. I have a thousand different difficult symptoms, help me. Okay, let's go to work. That, that's what interests me. And uh, to kind of help this particular person to um, come to a positive state of mind with, with, a, with a confident mind, with an understanding, with a wisdom, and, and, and finding a place in the world from which they can do some good, you know, so that, so I, I work with the, with the individual and do deep work rather than 
at least so far, you know, uh, um, rather than let's just say teaching a, a workshop to a hundred people and then hope that some people can make a lot of it and that it doesn't harm others, you know, so, um, no, uh, but you know, it's also, you know, where I placed myself in, in, in this kind of world. I don't attract any criticism because uh, I, I am a, I'm a psychotherapist, a Buddhist th therapist with a very strong Tibetan Buddhist background, but I also have the freedom because of that to, to do my own thing. And, um, and I think it is also acknowledged particularly for my clients, you know, I mean, they have these experiences themselves, you know, they have all, most of my clients have some sort of normal experiences. They don't think that's just uh, gobbledygook or, or invented that. And even if I invented it, let's just assume it, I invented it. If it works, so what? You know, uh, we, we know, you know, from other sources and even in science that certain inventions are made across the globe at the same time. It's very strange, isn't it? Uh, or, or that some people, you know, get some sort of dream and then they make some sort of invention with the guy with the DNA and that was curled up and so on. And, uh, you know, their ideas that come from who knows what. And, uh, and, and, the, and then so, some people on, on this earth can pick up on them. You know, did these people invent that or were they able to link into that higher uh, knowledge that was kind of given to this earth ball at this time? You know, how do you explain that these inventions are made at the same time across the globe, even before we had telephones and were able to communicate with each other? It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Mm, very interesting. Do you think that uh, certain people have, I suppose, just inbuilt proclivities in the same way that some people are more gifted in sports or mathematics, for example? And there, there's, of course, education and opportunity, but there does seem to be... Uh, some sort of natural gifting in those domains, at least. Do you think it's also the case in the in the spiritual domain? Uh, do we have spiritual da Vinci's and so on? And do we have uh, yeah, uh, Kundalini whizzes, etc., who just seem to have the talent for it? Yes, absolutely. But that is that is this Kundalini process. That is the the process of consciousness expansion. Because if your consciousness is expanded, you can pick up on those ideas more easily. And then you can communicate with with higher sources of knowledge. You know that's exactly what that is. Mm. And uh, is there a talent? Well, yes. If you have done that work in your previous life, you know. I mean, it's you. You always started without a talent, and then you did the work. You did put in the hours of meditation, the self exploration, the whatever is needed to expand your consciousness. And um, and then and then you get born again, and then everybody says, "Oh, look, look at this person that has a talent." You know, it's you, we can easily see that with these talent shows where people sing. It's, and then there's these little girls at eight years, and they can sing like an opera diva. You know, for me, this is absolutely obvious that they that they've done that in their past life, and they they know the technique how to, to sing like that. And then now it just needs to be a little bit refreshed in this life. And there it is again, you know, it's pretty obvious to me. And 
also when these, these, these children who can sing like that when they grow up, <clears throat> the peers catch up from this life. And then when they're 20 or so, then they're not so special anymore. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so yes, it is, uh, and, 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 you know, these kind of consciousness expansions, you know, people um, have that to various degrees also in, 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 um, in science, let's say, if you are a physicist or a biologist and you really, really go into the depths of your material and, and, and maybe you are in some way open and you, you listen to your dreams and so on, then, then you get more knowledge that way. I mean, this is widely known in the, in the scientific community, but I mean, they're not making a big deal out of it because they don't want to really want this to be true, but certainly true. Well, fascinating. Well, I'll, I'll ask you the third time then. We, I must petition you for a sequel some, some weeks later, whenever it's convenient, to talk about uh, Siddhi and also the specifics of the sorts of things people come to with their various Kundalini crises and how they get into that mess and how you get them out of it. That would be, I think, very interesting to talk about. But this has been such a fascinating conversation. Taris Bringit, thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. Oh, I did want to ask you, actually, did you change your name to Tara based on your relationship with White Tara, or is that a coincidence? No, it's not a coincidence. It's exactly like that. Oh. You know, we find that a lot in, uh, you know, let's say if you become a nun or a monk, you get a new name or all sorts of other spiritual tradition. If you, if you make, you know, a strong jump in your spiritual development and you want to be somehow more engrossed in, in your spiritual development than before, you, you change your name because it helps you to let go from the limitations that you associated with the previous names. Because, you know, then, you know, when you always think, oh, uh, this, my, my original name is Ulrike, and Ulrike is, is associated with the childhood that I had, and, you know, I can do without that. <laughs> Well, Tower Tower Springer didn't have that childhood. <laughs> and it helps to disengage from that. Thank you. Well, bonus question there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Tara. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.